Welcome to the Homeschool High School podcast brought to you by sevensistershomeschool.com and the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. I'm Vicki and I am so excited today because I get to have one of my kids on the podcast for a talk about logic. Don't tune us out. This is really cool. So this is my oldest son, Dr. Micah Tillman. And Micah, will you just kind of give us a story about your logical life? Uh, uh, sure. Hello, mother. Hello, listeners. Uh, my logical life begins with doing math in high school and having to teach myself calculus. Uh, <laughs> now you got to tell that story. So yes, you did. A, we, we did all the usual maths in high school. And I think we were probably, I don't know what curriculum were you using a Becca maybe you you were using Saxon by that point because well, yeah. I had run out of we had run out of a Becca at that time right right so we we switched to I was trying to work on I got to calculus in my senior year and whatever curriculum we were using wasn't working and so we switched over to Saxon and that turned out to be really actually really helpful and I got through it um it was I, I think I actually found geometry harder because all those proofs in geometry yeah, like yeah. proving that one angle, like I just, I don't, I, I don't know, man, but I kind of enjoyed calculus, but it wasn't really till I got to college and majored in computer science and then had to take lots of math courses that I think I actually understood calculus. All right. So let's, let's tell the truth here. Like, like the true confession here, Micah taught himself calculus, but I was really important in the process. <laughs> yeah. He would come to me with a problem that he didn't understand. And he would tell me the problem and I would use my counseling skills. I would say, and then he would solve the problem verbally out loud. So the poor guy, he, he learned calculus by psychological insight. Well, you, you were suddenly a good example for me when I became a, 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 a math tutor later in grad school. And if I had followed your example better as a math tutor, I would have not tried to jump in and solve problems for my students uh, as quickly as I did because uh, I don't know you get to those points in um when you're working with a student and I'm sure all the listeners know about this where you know what the answer is and you can see how to get to the answer you start to get a little panicking feeling yeah. when you you're afraid that if you just sit there quietly the whole thing the the whole teaching moment is just going to fall apart and yeah. you'll be stuck forever. It's like a mixture of <laughs> awkward silences and conversation and then feeling like you're a failure as a teacher. Yeah. I don't think that I really started to make a connection between my mathematics because I had to take lots of mathematics as a computer science major. This was before yeah. I, before I switched to philosophy for grad school. I had to take a lot of mathematics and I wasn't that good at it. I was good enough to pass the courses and usually get pretty good grades, but I wasn't like one of my friends. I remember I went to Messiah College, um, which is now Messiah University. It is. It is. Oh, yes. Cool. We have leveled up. Cool. And uh, I was walking down one of the corridors in the um, the computer science and engineering building and I saw my friend Benno in one of the empty classrooms writing all over the chalkboards. And I stopped in and I said, hey, Benno, uh, what you doing? And he said, I'm calculating the orders of infinity. Oh and I had no, to this day, I'm not entirely sure what he meant by that. <laughs> okay, but, he, that's wonderful. but he was clearly having a blast. And so yeah. I, I got this, 
I got this inkling that there were some people in the world who really enjoyed math. And I was the kind of person who could get by in math. And then there were people who just hated math because it was like this oppressive, yeah, difficult, frustrating, soul crushing subject for them. And like trying to figure out like all these different experiences mm. with Benno clearly just loving this stuff and being able to do math that was beyond me, me not being that f- efficient with math, but still I got A's mm-hmm. um, or A minuses, I guess, in calculus one, two, and three. Yeah, I think I got an A minus in one, an A minus in two, and then I finally got an A in three. Um, but then the next class I got a B plus in. So that yeah. helped me with my pride. Um, trying to, f- and then, then when I went to grad school, I switched to philosophy. I went to grad school and I had all this math in my background and I started teaching, I'm sorry, tutoring students. And I found that at the level of algebra, I actually found it fun. Like algebra for me was the fun subject, like orders of infinity was for Benno. Like I found a place where I was comfortable and I had all these poor students. This was remedial algebra for them. And they would come to me and they would just be totally miserable. And that forced me to ask the question of why, what is it about algebra specifically that I was finding fun, that was actually mm-hmm. enjoyable to me, that made me look forward to getting to work through these problems. After all, they're called problems. Like, why would a problem be enjoyable? That doesn't make yeah, any right. sense. Right. Like my students' experience made sense. We call them problems and exercises. You ever <laughs> notice the language, the language we use when we're talking about math? It's I never thought about it, but it's yes, it's by verbally creating stress they're making math harder yeah yeah you know you can't blame everything on teachers uh but it would be good i think now and again to to think about how how might we be able to reframe things in a way that doesn't set people up to be miserable with it because i i I get the impression that the people who succeed at math are the people who have like a have a natural proclivity for it and they would learn it whoever their teacher was but most of the rest of us, we need a lot of help along the way. And so thinking about how do I get my students to see how to reason their way through these math problems? And then after I got my PhD in philosophy, I ended up teaching a lot of symbolic logic courses. And I ended up with students in the same situation where I was having a blast solving these quote unquote logic problems. And they were all miserable. And so once again, I had to ask myself, what is it that's making this an enjoyable experience for me? Why do I find this fun when it's clearly problems? And why are they finding it so difficult? So what did you do with that? Because I think very slowly, it takes often takes me years to figure stuff out. So I started tutoring math when I was working on my master's degree. And it wasn't until I was wrapping up my Actually, I just finished my PhD, I think. The first year I taught um, symbolic logic. Mm -hmm. But I had been doing my dissertation on this old philosopher named Edmund Husserl. And he was a mathematician to start off with. Was he? I didn't know that. Yeah. And he was in Germany in the late 1800s when there was lots of mathematical revolution going on uh in like germany was not only the focus for the psychological revolution like where the psychology really gets going as a science Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um is in germany in the late 1800s and then with william james in america as well same thing was happening in uh, uh mathematics in germany and most of the german mathematicians 
had come to the conclusion that math was actually a specialized form of logic. And so they were working on trying to show how the rules of mathematics, like one plus one equals two. And if you want to undo a multiplication, you just divide by the same number. All those rules that work in mathematics, mm -hmm. they wanted to show how they followed from logical rules and trying to figure out how that worked um, led Husserl out of mathematics and into logic and out of logic into studying how signs work because signs and symbols are so important for both mathematicians and logicians. And like, if you think about looking at a page full of, of mathematical problems, like all those weird symbols, yeah. it's like trying to read another language that you don't know. And so Husserl started thinking about if I want to understand how math works, I need to know how logic works. And if I want to understand how logic works, I need to know how signs and symbols work. Like how does the human mind interact with signs and symbols and the rules for moving those around? You know, like in, in when you're doing an algebra problem where you have to, if you do one thing to one side of the equation, you have to do the same thing to the other side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I subtract two from the left side, I have to subtract two from the right side. Mm -hmm. Husserl was thinking about like, why does that work? Why, when we follow those rules for, if I write the symbols minus two on one side and I write the symbols minus two on the other side, and then I follow the rules for what do you do when you see a minus symbol and what do you do when you see a two? Why is it that it ends up working? He ended up doing not only philosophy of math and philosophy of logic, but philosophy of language because he was focused on signs and then philosophy of mind because he was focused on how humans interact with signs. And so having to deal with all of this in my dissertation and then trying to teach students these weird languages like the language of math and the language of symbolic logic meant that it, it took me several years to try to put together, I think, a solution to the problem that students were having. Which was? Uh, well, my first year, I just taught logic the normal way. But uh -huh. then I convinced my boss to let me translate all of the symbols in logic, which are A's and B's and X's and Y's, just like you would find in, in uh, math. It looks uh -huh. very mathy when you're doing symbolic logic. I convinced her to, to let me write a computer program that translated all those symbols into shapes and mm -hmm. colors. So instead of like if you were doing a math problem, instead of moving around a bunch of symbols and forgetting that you needed to put a minus sign in front of something, which I'm sure has happened to many yeah. people, like you get to the end of the equation and you got the wrong answer and you realize it's because you missed the minus symbol. I convinced my boss to let me write a computer program that translated all the symbols in symbolic logic into shapes. So instead of having pluses and minuses and A's and B's and C's, you had boxes and pyramids and rhombuses and you change shapes and you move shapes around and you have colors and you move the colors around instead of having to think about these abstract symbols that look like they're in a language you don't understand. Yeah, that automatically caused stress just looking at them if you're not a natural mathematician kind of person. And yeah, it, it, it's and it's like reading a foreign, like if somebody, I remember walking, I, I was in Brussels, Belgium for a philosophy of math conference once and I walked into a chocolate shop because I wanted to buy uh, my wife Ruth some chocolate from Belgium. 
And oh. I said, bonjour. And the lady behind the counter said, bonjour. And then she started rattling off a bunch of questions in French. Um, <laughs> And I had to stop her and say, I'm sorry, I am an ignorant American tourist. If you talk very slowly and you spell out each word, I might be able to understand it. But I think that a lot of students have that same experience when they get to a math problem yeah. or an entire sheet full of math problems. So I ended up writing a computer program that was actually a game. I realized the reason why I was enjoying mathematics and enjoying symbolic logic was that I experienced those subjects as a mystery puzzle solving game. Uh -huh. So I was solving puzzles, which was fun. And my students were solving problems, which wasn't fun. And so I decided that if I wanted to help my students see what we were doing as a puzzle solving game, uh -huh. and maybe help their brains work a little differently by seeing shapes and colors instead of letters and, you know, parentheses and plus signs and whatnot that maybe if I did it in terms of a video game, um, that that might help them out. Mm -hmm. I, I hear Sterling in the background. Yeah, he, he, he defends us from all the neighbors who daily try to come to our house and murder us by le leaving us a newspaper or often they don't really come to our house because he scares them away uh. Bef before they get in. Instead, they go into the house next door. Um, <laughs> So, but, but he's defending, and Sterling's a little teeny tiny dog. Yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's very, very he's very strong and courageous. <laughs> so, so that so what you were able to do was turn problems into puzzles, which alleviates some of the panic and stress that a lot of those of us who don't love math um, and don't love the idea of logic, because there's all of these math-looking things there. Yeah. And you, you, you created a game. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I realized that um, there's a kind of one-to-one -one relationship between when you're solving a math problem or solving a logic problem, you, you end up writing uh, lines. So you write your equation on the first line or you write your opening premises if it's a logic problem on the first line. And then you, below that, on the next line down, you write the the transformation of the first line so like i subtract two from both sides and i write the result on the next line and then i divide both sides by five and i write the result on the next line and that kind of sequential process of lines reminded me a lot of the way in which people make moves um, in a chess game or play cards in a card game where you first you play this card and then you play that card and then you play that card and so what i ended up producing with a lot of late nights of programming, which my computer science degree finally came in useful there, um, was a card game where you had to put together, each card was one line in the logic proof, or each card would be one line in your algebra solution if I was able to get it to work for algebra, which I haven't been able to yet. Algebra turns out to be difficult, but it's the same basic idea. If you play your cards in the right order and you move your shapes around in the right way, um, and also if you anthropomorphize things a little bit, so if you can think about the laws that you have to follow when you're solving a logic problem or a math problem in terms of what the little pieces in the game you're playing want to do, what they're afraid of, where they want to be, where they feel comfortable, you, you end up being able to translate all of the rules from rules about what do I do with all these crazy symbols and letters and stuff on the page 
to what do I do with all these little colorful characters and shapes on the page and how do I morph them into each other? And so I used that program with continual updates for teaching logic for two years. And I don't have any uh, peer reviewed scientific studies that show that <laughs> translating opaque symbols into colorful shapes and characters um, helps students, but I would love to participate in such a study if anybody wants to grow up and become an experimental psychologist and then compare my way of doing uh, things to the traditional way. There's, there's a project for some of our homeschool high schoolers to yeah. head off and go into experimental psych. And, and they're able to do it a lot. A lot of my students now are able to do scientific quality survey-based research because of all the online survey apps that are now available for free. So, yeah. so I, have had, I have had high schoolers, ninth graders, in fact, um, who have done studies uh, through surveys as part of their the biology and statistics class that I teach um, that I think are actually worthy of uh, consideration for publication. So I think there's, there's a lot of opportunities for high schoolers that weren't available to me when I was their age. So, so All right. So now rabbit trail for a minute. And then while we build tension on about this game, so tell, tell our, our listeners what you do for a living these days. So I, I teach ninth and 10th grade uh, at Stanford Online High School. Stanford University has an online high school that's been around for 13, 14 years now. It was started by a bunch of computer science philosophy nerds. Um, mm -hmm. And well, actually, it grows out of a program that was started by computer science and philosophy nerds back in the 60s. Oh, like these guys, it's Silicon Valley, right? It's Stanford University. And so they were on this online remote education thing for a long time. Um, and because they were a bunch of philosophers, they made the core sequence the, you have to take one class each year that's part of the core sequence in 9th, 10th, and 11th, and 12th grade. Um, and those are philosophy courses or scientific critical thinking philosophy courses. Um, so okay. I teach the 9th grade and 10th grade versions of those. The 9th grade one starts off with an introduction to scientific reasoning using the case study of how biologists and statisticians work. Mm -hmm. And once again, I've had that experience where you look at a, the formula for figuring out whether or not you have a statistically significant result from your study. And it's just a bunch of symbols. And I feel bad for my students because I haven't yet figured out how to do math with nice colors and shapes and whatnot. But once students have gotten a flavor for some and on some hands-on practice with how biologists and statisticians do scientific reasoning, in 10th grade, we then study the history and philosophy of science to see where this way of reasoning about the world came from and how it's developed and where we are now. And then in 11th grade and 12th grade, they move on to talk about political philosophy and then philosophy in general. So it's a kind of gradual process of here's how scientists think and here's why it's good that they think this way. Here's how critical thing happening happens in science to here's where this way of thinking about life and the world came from out of philosophical debates. And then how do we apply philosophical critical thinking to political debates? And then how do we apply this to the rest of life in their 12th grade? So the, the immediate upshot of that is you have students doing valid research in ninth and 10th grade then, which is 
pretty darn cool. Yeah. At the, at the end of ninth grade, at the end of the ninth grade class, they all have to do a hands-on study where they have to set up some sort of experiment or um, survey. They get to do their choice that they're more comfortable with the biology and chemistry side of things, or if they're more com comfortable with the psychology and sociology side of things. And they have to run an experiment or do a study, and then they have to analyze the results using the statistical concepts that we learned over the course of the course. Um, and some of the students have done really, I mean, they, they all end up doing really fun projects, but some of them are the kind of things where I think to myself, if I had been this clear about what research topics interested me when I was in ninth grade, I would probably be um, a tenured professor at Harvard you know, because uh, these the the kids end up often being much smarter than I am, or at least than I was at their age. Yeah, well, and it also shows though our our standard American curriculum um, is is pulling everyone to the center. Um, it's you know the the bell shaped curve. So yeah, rather than teaching innovation, it's teaching how to be a normal person. And I, I, you know, it's valid for the, the, a lot of people, it, you know, there's not one right way to high school and there's not one right way to homeschool, but, you know, for kids who have the ability to, to think and to problem solve, why squelch it in ninth grade with a boring textbook? Yeah. Um, that's, that's, uh, anyway, so why, why squelch the ability to think logically with a boring textbook if you can have a yeah. game? So let's let's transition over to the yeah, game. Yeah, so so I call the 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 game could every every problem problem, every puzzle in symbolic logic, which is just a I have to go back to the beginning if I'm I haven't actually explained what symbolic logic is, have I? <laughs> so uh, back in the day, there was this guy named Aristotle and Aristotle realized that argument proofs uh, like when you're making an argument in court where you're not debating with somebody else. You're offering evidence to try to convince somebody to believe something. Those yeah. kind of arguments are, I'm going to give you some yeah. evidence to convince you to believe a conclusion. They all have similar forms. So they all say things like, if it rains outside, then the ground is going to be wet and I will need to wear my galoshes. It did rain outside this morning. So I better wear my galoshes and, or that's what you as a parent would be telling your mm -hmm. children. Um, or for a parent, mm -hmm. it's most like, it's usually like, if I'm cold, then you need to wear a jacket. I don't care how you feel. I do feel yeah. cold today. You can't argue with me about that. I know how I feel. I feel cold. Therefore you better wear a jacket. <laughs> All of those kinds of proofs have similar structures where they have an, if something is true, then something else is true. And the first thing is true. So the mm -hmm. second thing has to be true. Mm -hmm. And what Aristotle ended up doing was writing down all of the forms of arguments that work, that actually prove their conclusions, no matter whether you put in, if I'm cold, then you better wear a jacket. Or if it's rainy, then you better wear galoshes. Whatever you put into those blanks, you always have the if and then the then. Mm -hmm. Aristotle figured out that there were mm -hmm. certain forms that worked and certain forms that didn't. He wrote them all down and everybody was convinced that that was as much as you could do with logic for the next 2000 years. Mm -hmm. You could figure out what the basic forms were. And then a bunch of mathematicians came along in the 1800s and said, you know what? Those blanks that Aristotle put 
into his argument forms, if blank, then blank. So if blank is true, then blank is true. All those blanks, we could use all this algebra stuff that we've been doing recently, and we could put symbols in there. And we don't even have to write the word if anymore. We can just use an arrow. And we don't have to write the word and anymore. Like if it's cold outside and it's snowing, then you better get your sled. We don't even have to write the word and. We can come up with a symbol for the word and. And so you end up with mathematicians in the 1800s turning logic from a series of words like snow and cold and jacket and galoshes and rain and arguments or mm. debates about the physical world we live in. Like if you vote for so-and-so, mm -hmm. then something is going to happen. And they replace all the words with symbols. And at the end of it, like A's and B's and Q's. And, and at the end of it, you end up with, yeah. you end up with a system that's just as symbolic and opaque as math usually is, but it's also very precise. And so you can end up doing symbolic logic problems that look identical to mathematical problems and are just as long and just as complicated and start to feel like they have nothing to do with the real world anymore because it's just ones and twos and Qs and Xs and whatnot. And one thing I thought was with my students, if I ask them to spend a semester playing a, a computer game, I won't have to justify to them why they're doing it. I won't have to explain to them how it's going to be useful for them when they grow up. I'm sure that all parents have had this question from their from their kids. Why do I have to study math? What am I going to use this for? Yes. Have you ever noticed yes. that you never get the question, why do I have to play this game? What am I going to use this game for when I grow up? Yes. Especially if it's a video game. Yeah. Like you play video games because they're fun. Right. And you solve puzzles because they're fun. Because oh. that's a joyful experience. It's part of the the wonders of God's universe that <laughs> that we have been given a world in which there are games and puzzles to solve. And yeah. I think the lucky people see automatically that math problems and logical proofs are games. The rest of us have to be shown it. And so I used my programming skills to create a card game where you have shapes that you can move around, you can drag and drop. They have eyes and angry eyebrows. Um, they even have, the, I turned the symbol for negation in symbolic logic into a club because it makes, <laughs> it makes the characters in the game negative and they get angry at each other. Uh -huh. The main shapes I called chamber gons because they were polygons divided into chambers. Each polygon has two chambers in it, mm -hmm. just like every math thing you do is always one thing plus another thing. And negation became a club and they get angry at each other or they feel relieved when you put them in the right spot and they try to beat each other up with the clubs. It was very violent for a, a logic game. And so I called it chamber gone battle logic, um, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and at the end of it, if yeah. you work out all their feelings, if you help, if you help all the little characters process their feelings, basically at the end of the process, you have proved something logically if you translate it back into the symbols. So you, I end up, you, tr you take a logic problem, you translate it from symbols into shapes and colors and angry and happy characters. You work all the issues out and then at the end you translate it back into symbols and you have the answer to the problem, to the quote unquote problem. But hopefully in the meantime, you've been having fun moving shapes and characters around.
Yeah, and so what your your students have learned as they have had fun playing the game is the basics of symbolic logic. And so, all right, let's let's rabbit trail for a minute, and then I want you to tell everybody about how their homeschool high schoolers can play chamber gong battle logic. So, why is it useful for a teen? to learn some logical thinking. So there are two sides of it. The first side is that learning logical thinking for critical thinking purposes, learning how to recognize when somebody is making an argument, when they're offering you evidence to try to get you to a conclusion, being able to evaluate whether the connection between the evidence and the conclusion is a strong connection or a weak connection, being able to evaluate whether the evidence that they're offering you is good evidence or bad evidence. All those kind of things are so important, not only for being able to think about uh, politics, to be able to read the news, but for um, encountering any sorts of popular media like movies or music, being able to not just passively absorb what the world is handing to you, as it were, but being able to process it, mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. the moves that are being made, uh, what people are trying to get you to feel and to believe and to evaluate whether or not they're giving you good evidence and good reasons for doing that. That All, all of that stuff is part of, that's critical thinking, that's part of practical logic, and it's, it's key to being a good human being and a responsible citizen, I think. Uh-huh. And the same thing goes for mathematics. The reason why mathematicians have developed most of the math that they've developed is that it actually ends up being really useful for describing the way the world works, for building buildings, for making machines, for sending probes to Mars so that you can learn about all those physics calculations Mm -hmm. and all the calculations they do in chemistry and in statistics, trying to understand how pandemics spread. All of that practical stuff is really useful. But there's this other side of both logic and math where it's just play. It's like mathematicians and logicians. They have their work life and they have their play life. They're, 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 mm-hmm. What's the word for your time off? Recreation. Your leisure. <laughs> yeah, they have, they, have, they have their work and they have the leisure. They, ha- uh, they have their, their serious math and their recreational math. And a lot of times... The serious math comes out of the games that they play in their recreational math time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so often, as happens in many sciences, it's the scientific developments that nobody knows what to do with or the mathematical developments that seem to have no use Mm -hmm. that end up being super useful and important down the road. But I think that even those Mm -hmm. playful sides of math where you've just got a puzzle that you want to solve or the playful sides of logic where you just have a series of symbols and you want to see what you can get out of them. Even those are good exercise for the mind. Yes. Learning how to think sequentially, how to solve problems, how to take inputs and produce outputs uh, and making sure that you're not missing anything or skipping steps, learning that kind of mental discipline that also comes through practice, just like you have to practice as an athlete, I think is is super important. Mm-hmm. And even if it weren't super important, if it's fun, that's an important part of life as well. Because you know, God spends six days yeah. making the universe and then rest on the seventh. Like you've got to rest and have fun sometimes. And it's yeah. I, I have been very pleased the more I think about it, that logic and math 
have both these sides and both of them are useful for training you how to think well and uh, they can also be a lot of fun if they're taught properly I think. Well and, and having a format where teens can play a game and have fun makes good infrastructure for learning so if they develop their brain's capacity to learn and have fun learning they can add other things onto it like critical thinking for real life situations or a higher level math that the college bound students will need. So I think uh, the idea of fun, you know, God gave us things to give us merry hearts. It is good like a medicine and it helps us to be healthier human beings in our soul and uh, better thinkers. Um, So, so explain how people, if they wanted their teens to have an introduction to symbolic logic in a game form, how they could get connected with that. Uh, so if you go to chambergon.com, that's C-H-A-M-B-E-R-G-O-N, chambergon.com, you can see two things. First, you can see the original version of the game that I created for my college students. You can download it and run it on your own computer. It's written in Java FX. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody uses Java FX anymore, but hopefully it will still run. There's lots of uh, documentation to go along with it. There's a textbook that will walk you through the various concepts as well as a user manual to help you out if the program isn't functioning the way you want. Mm-hmm. I have reports that at least one of the puzzles has a glitch in it where you can't solve it. But fortunately, Um, There are way more puzzles in the game than you need to finish the game. I I structured the game like an RPG, um, um, in in RPG role-playing games. In role-playing games, you have a character who builds up experience and skill points, and you want to build up enough, you, you level up. So you start at level one, and as you gain experience and skill points, you move to level two and level three. I use that structure for the game and all you have to do to get an A in the course is to get all the way to level 10. And that's one of the nice things about math and logic and a lot of the sciences is that they're skill-based disciplines in in addition to being knowledge-based. So it's not just about memorization. It really is Mm -hmm. about getting better like learning how to do something. yeah. Um, and so there's an intrinsic mm-hmm. motivation to completing the thing because you want to make progress in the game. And if you fail, it's not like you failed the course. It's just like when you're playing a video game where you just, you start over on that puzzle. You keep working. When I taught that, when I taught my college classes using this, the only, the rules were students had to take a midterm exam, which was just a set of puzzles that they had to solve. Um, but that was only part of their grade. Most of their grade was how far do they get in the game? And so some students mm-hmm. could wait till the last week of class and try to master everything all at once and get all the way to the end. But I think in spite of that, it's a better way of going about teaching, which I wish I could do in my other courses than saying, because you didn't used to be able to solve this problem when you took the midterm, you now have an F in this course. Mm -hmm. In a game, what matters is not what happened in the past, but what skills have you learned? Absolutely. The question isn't, could you beat the game the first time you tried to play it, but can you beat the game now? Have you actually learned the skills? And framing the entire mission, I think, of both math and logic as a game where you're developing skills, where you're making progress, and what matters is where you end up, 
not how fast you got there, as it were, is really important. Which is perfect because, you know, we, we tend as homeschoolers to aim for mastery yeah. rather than, you know, like, like a time limited thing. So this fits our homeschool frame of mind so well. All right. Now, now you got to tell everybody how much they're going to have to pay for their kids playing chamber gone. Uh, so it's completely free. Mm-hmm. It's also completely old. So I am, uh, so I wrote it in 2014 and 2015, I think. And for some, for some reason that feels like 20 years ago now, <laughs> 2020 has been a very long year in and of itself. And then it has like, been, oh my yeah. goodness. But in the, in the meantime, I am doing what video game makers call porting. I'm porting the game to the unity game engine and the unreal game engine. I think I'm going to go with the unreal game engine. I've made a lot of progress on unity, but there are real weird licensing issues that make unreal. And if any students out there have played video games, they will have heard of the unity game engine and the unreal game engine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm going to be porting it to, which will allow a lot of um, online functionality, better graphics, animations, tutorials built into the game instead of having to read the, instead of having to read the textbook. So my goal is eventually to be able to hand people a game, Uh have them beat the game and never realize that what they've been doing is learning logic, uh, but get to the end of it and being, and be able to solve logic problems. They just didn't know that they were working the whole time because they were having so much fun. Yeah. Um, so that's my goal. So there's the old version, the classic version, which is free and available right now. And because I'm so busy teaching my current students and working on the port to new and better systems, um, I don't have time to keep up with uh, bug reports that I get from from occasionally from people who say, hey, Micah, um, all the rest of the puzzles are fine. But puzzle number 100, you forgot a card. Um, you didn't include that card that we needed to solve it. So fortunately, like I said, there are way more puzzles than you actually need to beat the game. And so if one doesn't work for you, you can just drop it and go for another one, which is another nice thing about games. Sometimes if you're trying to solve a puzzle, you look at the thing and you can't figure it out. But if you go and do something else, that works just fine. And so having the game structure, I think, helps with that as well. Well, and having the, the textbook to go along with it, like, I mean, free is good and I think it's just such a good experience for our teens to get some kind of logic in their brains. Now, now one of the things that you did a long time ago is to help me put together our history and philosophy of the Western world where kids get um, a view of history and the philosophers of the time. So we talk about Aristotle yeah. and the, the the basic forms of logic. So teens walk away with that with a little tiny taste yeah. of, uh, of that infrastructure. So I've got to move us on to some, some shameless plugs then. So one of the things that our, um, my youngest son, when he and his friends were in high school, they had just finished the history and philosophy of the Western world course. They just got so excited about thinking and philosophy that they wanted more. So they went to Seth's big brother, Micah, and said, we want a real philosophy textbook. And so Micah gave them uh, philosophy in four questions. And it's a textbook written for high schoolers. So it's it's not, you know, college level. It's very appropriate for teens, but it's genuine philosophy. So Micah, do you want to tell a tiny bit about that? Yeah, that's another one of those things where after, and I'm sure parents have this experience where 
you teach the first two or three kids a subject. And by the time you get to the third or fourth kid, you really understand what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's the way I felt with philosophy. After teaching intro to philosophy for for, for many years, I was starting to, to see what I thought was the structure of philosophy and the ways that were helpful for students to understand things. And so it was a lot of fun to write this book where I break philosophy up into the four basic questions that philosophers ask. Uh, what is there? How do we know? What should we do about it? And why? And I show the different ways in which each of those general questions gets asked in specific ways. Um, like, what is there? Does the world contain God? Is the world made out of physical stuff or mental stuff or both? What should we do about it? Should we love our neighbors or should we seek the highest pleasure? Why? What's important in life? There are many different ways of making the four general questions that philosophers ask very specific and targeted. And so each chapter is only a few pages long that deals with one version of one of the four questions, talks about the ways in which philosophers have discussed and debated those questions uh, throughout history and uh, ask some, some further thinking questions um, for students to engage with on their own. Um, and so I had a lot of fun writing it and I had a lot of fun talking with the first students who, who went through the course. And so I'm, I'm hoping that people continue to enjoy it. Yeah, it really is one of our popular courses. And I know Seth and his buddies, when they finished it, they said that was their favorite course in high school. So well. it's, it's such a, an exciting thing because there's a, a generation of young people who are coming into adulthood now, you know, Seth is now a college graduate and a teacher, yeah. but he went through his early adulthood already having some framework for thinking and asking the kinds of questions that can eventually lead to healthy life and changing the world. So yeah. um, I, I just think it's awesome. So anyway, if, um, if you'd like to get in touch with Micah or um, to download ChamberGon, Michael, will you give that information one more time and then remind everybody philosophy and four questions and history and philosophy of the Western world are at sevensistershomeschool.com. All right. So tell everybody how to get in touch with you. So I have, I have two sites. There's micahtillman.com, M-I-C-A-H-T-I-L-L-M-A-N, where you can find some of my work, including some of my fun stuff that I've been doing with fractals. I, uh, math is a a blast when you're allowed to play with it. Um, yeah. And you can read some of my writings there, some of my philosophical papers. And then chambergon.com, C-H-A-M-B-E-R, chamber, and then G-O-N, like polygon, chambergon.com is where you can find um, some information and the download for the classic version of the logic game. That is so awesome. So everybody look those things up and let's give our kids the tools to be culture and world changers. That will be really cool. So Micah, thank you for taking time out to to share. It's been a while and it's good to hear your voice. Well, and th thank you, Mother. And thank you all for letting me uh, process out loud these topics that I, as I said before, it often takes me years to work through. So I, I love this stuff and I find it a lot of fun and getting to talk about it helps me to understand it better myself. Lovely. Okay. Thank you everybody for being with us. This has been the Homeschool High School Podcast. Brought to you by sevensistershomeschool.com and the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. Be sure if you can, please hop over to iTunes and leave us a, a review and some stars because that helps other people find us. We will see you next week.